Welcome to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. Hey, I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Thursday, May 27th, 2021, and we are live. Hope everybody's doing well today. Well, look, it's been a very, very uh, busy day today, and we have a lot to talk about. We know that more coverage is taking place on the dealing with the 100th uh, commemoration of the uh, Tulsa massacre, the Tulsa race massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma, May 31st and June 1st, 1921. We're going to talk some more about that on today's show. And uh, there was a good article from uh, NBC News. We talked about it a little bit on Wednesday's show. Um, Tulsa's Greenwood District with Black Wall Street was prosperous after the 1921 race massacre, after the 1921 race massacre. Then the highways came through. Then the highways came through. And a lot of people don't know this. I've talked about this before numerous times in in the uh, lecture that I do dealing with the history of of, uh, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, I deal with the fact that... um, Black Black Wall Street was rebuilt after the race riot. Okay, we rebuilt Black Wall Street with our own dollars, and then the other African American uh, towns in Tulsa, uh, well, in Oklahoma, the other African American towns uh, helped out as well. But we rebuilt Black Wall Street, and it was prosperous again. Uh, just after a few years, it was prosperous again, even in like nineteen twenty five, nineteen twenty six. But then the expressways came through. The expressways came through, and the expressways destroyed uh, a lot, a, a lot of the businesses and homes and things like this. Okay, so this is uh, we see this, you know, taking place in uh, Tulsa. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. There was a really good article from the NBC News that dealt with that, and the, the fact that we rebuilt. Uh, the Greenwood District. We built Black Wall Street uh, after the race massacre. Now, this does not mean that we should uh, the the, the African Americans who are there, the descendants and the three survivors. This does not mean that they should not get uh, reparations. Yes, they should get reparations, and reparations should go to the entire African American community there in North Tulsa because they all. Um, they all suffer one way or another the from the devastation that took place there and the wiping out of wealth, the wiping out of businesses and homes, et cetera. So they, so they all suffer one way or another. Now, there is, um, there's a lot of money being raised off the commemoration. And you have white people in control of a lot of these events and a lot of the money taking place. You have events that African-Americans are putting on and controlling. But like the city of Tulsa, a lot of that stuff, a lot of those commemorations taking place, things like that, that's controlled by white people. Okay? And as Viola Fletcher, Mother Fletcher, who's 107 years old, when she testified Wednesday, May 19th, 2021, she talked about the fact that, um, you know, the $30 million has been raised there by the city of Tulsa, whatever the name of that committee is, uh, 
30 million dollars has been raised none of the money has gone to any of the of the descendants of the Tulsa race massacre all right it, now they talked about this on the readout with Joanne Reed today and we're going to share this segment because and and then also Roland Martin is on location in Tulsa Oklahoma as well and he uh, on his show today he was dealing a lot with that he was interviewing people on the ground there in Tulsa people who African Americans who live in Tulsa who are talking about how white people are coming in making this money off of the pain and and the death of African Americans all right I'll be on Roland Martin Unfiltered uh, again on uh, on Friday, May 28th. I'm a panelist each Friday on Roland Martin Unfiltered. So uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about this uh, on Friday. But it, there was a good segment from uh, the readout with Joanne Reed on MSNBC dealing with uh, remembering the Tulsa uh, massacre 100 years later. And they talked about what's going on, what's going on down there, how white people are making money off of the commemoration of the Tulsa race massacre. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on the Antenna on the Superstation Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Thursday, May 27th, 2021. All right, and we are live. Uh, calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. Uh, now, also, before the break, I didn't get a chance to tell you. The, the uh, another, another topic we're going to discuss today is um, Kristen Clark, attorney Kristen Clark was confirmed um, on, what was that, Tuesday, uh, Tuesday, May 25th. She was confirmed as uh, to head up the Department of Justice uh, Civil Rights Division. She'll be the first African-American woman to uh, head up the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. Um, and she was confirmed in the U.S. Senate by a vote of 51 to 48, 51 to 48. She'll be the civil rights. Um, yeah, she'll be the uh, assistant attorney general for civil rights, assistant attorney general for uh, civil rights, Kristen Clark. And there was only one Republican who voted for her. OK. Um, and that was Senator Susan Collins, Senator Tim Scott, the only African-American senator, senator in the uh, Republican senator, only African-American Republican senator, did not vote for this sister, Kristen Clark, who's a brilliant, brilliant attorney. And uh, Senator Tim Scott is up for re-election also in 2022 as well. All right. So uh, I want to jump into this first story here. Um, I've talked about this a number of times, the fact that we rebuilt uh, Black Wall Street after the uh, race massacre all right now this doesn't mean that we shouldn't get uh reparations those those in tulsa should not get reparations that doesn't mean that because we rebuilt it but it shows uh what we can do when we work together as well so there's a there's a new book coming out by carlos moreno carlos moreno 
that deals with some of this history. And what happened was the expressways are going to come through like in the 1970s and wipe out a lot of these businesses, a lot of these black owned businesses in um, in uh, the Greenwood District. OK, so uh, I want to go to this. Uh, let me pull up this article here because we were having some technical difficulties. Uh, Tulsa's Greenwood neighborhood uh, found prosperity after the 1921 race massacre. Then highways arrived, then highways arrived. And we know that uh, the U.S. Interstate Highway Acts in 1952 and 1956 drove about 41,000 miles of U.S. Interstate Highways all across the country. And they ran through a lot of African-American communities. They ran through uh, Black Bottom right here in Detroit, um, Black Bottom Paradise Valley area. I-375 ran through uh, there wiping out uh, a lot of uh, homes and wiping out uh, there's about 300 businesses there that were wiped out. Okay, uh, Tulsa's Greenwood neighborhood found prosperity after the 1921 massacre. Then the highways arrived. Then the highways arrived. Uh, the plot to take to plot the plot to take it over has happened. It just didn't happen in 1921. A researcher uh, said of the once thriving Greenwood district. All right. So Carlos Marino, who is shown here, um, Carlos Marino uh, stood on the Archer Street Bridge over uh, U.S. Highway 75 in North Tulsa, pointing west as he squinted into the sun. Much like the wind on top of the bridge, the traffic underneath was loud and there was no shade from the May heat. But but it's here, he said where you can see what was taken, where you can see what was taken. Uh, he said, unless you're actually standing here, you don't know, uh, you don't get a sense of the destruction. And that he's an author and graphic designer who moved to Tulsa in the late 1990s. Now, at the end of May uh, 2021, it will be a century since a white mob looted uh, and burned uh, and murdered in Tulsa's Greenwood neighborhood, then known as Black Wall Street, where the business district was known as Black Wall Street. OK, the business district in North Tulsa was known as Black Wall Street, uh, killing hundreds and displacing thousands of African-Americans. Now, with this commemoration just days away, many have focused on the violence, but that's not the full story of Greenwood nor its end. OK. And here's a picture of the ruins of uh, after the 1921 race massacre. So in his new book, uh, set to be released next week, the book is called The Victory of Greenwood, The Victory of Greenwood. Um, Carlos Marino explores how the neighborhood had a second renaissance, had a second renaissance led by African-American Tulsans after the massacre rebuilding even bigger than before rebuild they rebuilt north tulsa even bigger than before it was not the bloodshed that eventually destroyed uh most of greenwood however rather it was he said pointing to the spaghetti of interchanges to the south and the expressway that stretches north it was the expressway that's going to eventually come through and destroy the rebuilt uh, Black Wall Street, the rebuilt Greenwood District. 
That's what's going to do it. It's, it's important for us to understand that African people work together to rebuild another black Wall Street in Tulsa. And it was even bigger than the first one. That's not talked about a lot because we don't understand our history. But it's the, it's the interstate highways that came through that destroyed it. All right, so, uh, quote, Black Tulsa is a happy city. It has new clothes. It, it is young. Now, this is Dr. W.B. Du Bois, 1926, okay, five years after the massacre, okay? Black Dr. W.B. Du Bois wrote, Black Tulsa is a happy city. It has new clothes. It is young and gay and strong. Dr. W.B. Du Bois wrote, after a 1926 visit, quote, five little years ago, fire and blood and robbery leveled it to the ground. Scars are there, but the city is impudent and noisy. It believes in itself. Thank God for the grit of Black Tulsa. Thank God for the grit of Black Tulsa. Now, I'm in seven documentaries. I'm in a documentary dealing with the history of Black Wall Street. I'm in another documentary from uh, Anthony Brogdon here in Detroit, uh, film director here in Detroit, dealing with uh, black, uh, black business. I forgot the exact name of it, it's black, uh, black business. And we, we deal with some of the history of African-American owned business, businesses, things like this. I've done a two and a half hour lecture dealing with the history of Black Wall Street also. This one right here. This is available at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Black Wall Street from destruction to the resurrection of economic empowerment. Black Wall Street from destruction to the resurrection of economic empowerment. And one of the things I, I talk about is how the uh, many people will focus on the destruction and what white people did to us but we won't focus on what we did in response. Number one, many of us were armed, so we shot back also. That's, that's another part that's left out. You had a lot of retired World War I veterans that lived in North Tulsa, brothers. They had guns, we shot back. We, 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 we weren't just running. And um, th this is some of the history of the 1919 Red Summer, where you had African-American World War I veterans who, who, who come back home after World War I ends in 1918. And you're going to have 25 major race riots across the country because white men were going crazy. They couldn't find jobs. They came back from the uh, army. They came back from the war. They couldn't find jobs. A lot of the jobs that they had before they left were being filled by African-Americans, many of them moving from the South up North, and then uh, other immigrants who were here. We filled that labor vacuum. So you're going to have these major racial conflicts that take place in 1919, and then is going to uh, continue uh, into, and see 1919, you still have the um, the uh, great pandemic taking place, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, which goes into 1919. You have that taking place as well. But you're going to have, um, you have a rise of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, that's a, as a result of the movie, The Birth of a Nation, uh, debuted February 8th, 1915. And the movie, The Birth of a Nation, rejuvenates the Ku Klux Klan because the, the Ku Klux Klan are the heroes of the movie. 
then you have um, the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, and the Ku Klux Klan helped instigate that. You had a lot of jealous white men who fought in World War uh, I and can't find jobs, and here, and here you have these prosperous African Americans. But you have, you know, in, in Tulsa, we're armed. So we're fighting back against the white supremacists. We're shooting back against them. Okay, so this is part of the history that's not talked about. This is why Hannibal B. Johnson's book is so good. It's so important. And Hannibal B. Johnson has another book dealing with the 100 um, commemoration as well. But uh, this book right here, uh, Black Wall Street from Riot to Renaissance in Tulsa's Historic Greenwood District. Okay, this is a crucial book. All right. So uh, let me flip back over here to the article. Then we're going to go to clip one here in just a second, Shakita. So by the 1950s and 1960s, Greenwood had blossomed into one of the most successful black neighborhoods in the country. OK. At, at its height, black business owners operated 40 grocery stores and dozens of confectionaries across the, the mixed use uh, 35 block community. OK. Now, this is in the 1950s and 60s when we rebuilt it. Because this is after we rebuilt Black Wall Street. It was it was uh, it had blossomed into one of the most successful black neighborhoods in the country again. So Carlos Marino says, and now what do you see? As he stood above the expressway, he said, it's just highways. That's it. There's nothing else. So what remains of the neighborhood's historic prosperity is one block of Black-owned businesses and the Vernon Chapel AME Church. Okay, that's what remains there, okay, in, in uh, uh, the uh, Greenwood District, which was the business district, the Greenwood District. That's what remains there, okay? What remains of the neighborhood's historic prosperity is one block of Black-owned businesses and the Vernon Chapel AME Church where many massacre survivors found refuge from the violence sandwiched between a minor league baseball field and the towering concrete of Interstate 244. To the north, vacant lots and empty buildings marked the once bustling area the city rezoned for industrial use. Okay, the city rezoned for industrial use. Redevelopment has crept up toward Greenwood from uh, downtown over the decades and a recent boom in the city's arts district, including upscale restaurants, posh bars and galleries has radically has radically uh, reshaped what was once considered West Greenwood. Now, Freeman Culver, the third president and CEO of the Greenwood Chamber of Commerce said the new developments, they're just squeezing us like a python. The new developments, they're just squeezing us like a python. Sounds like gentrification. Okay, so you see here you see a map, historic Greenwood here, and then Vernon Chapel AME Church here, the former location of the Dreamland Theater, all okay, all of this. So you have you have basically white people still in control of Tulsa, okay? And the governor, uh, what's his name, G.T. Bynum, the white man, he's a Trump supporter. Okay, he's a Trump supporter. All right. 
Um, let me see here. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to, uh, we're going to go to clip one here. Some warnings about safety and security that have caused the Remember and Rise event that was supposed to feature John Legend and Stacey Abrams to be, to be canceled. I want to get your, what we know about it. Just for, for our audience, I want to read this. In a memo, the Department of Homeland Security says they haven't seen any credible threats that the current homeland security threat environment remains heightened and also says white supremacists historically have used simple tactics such as vehicle ramming, small arms, edged weapons, and rudimentary explosive devices to target individuals perceived as having ideologically opposing views, racial minorities, or law enforcement at mass gatherings or crowded public spaces. What do we know about was, 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 what, was the, what prompted um, the commission to cancel? You know, there are a lot of things, Joy. The commission is not a part of the community of Greenwood. The descendants and survivors um, are not closely affiliated with what's happening in the commission. The commission is run by a bunch of white conservative Republicans who have raised over $30 million. And how much of that $30 million do you think they've offered to the actual descendants and survivors? Zero dollars. So I want to be clear with the American people watching right now. Uh, the commemoration continues with justice for Greenwood. And these are the descendants of Greenwood. These are the survivors of Greenwood. Uh, Dr. Tiffany Presser, who's the brother of Terrence Presser, he's hosting panels. The lawyer, Demario Solomon Simmons, he's hosting panels and events. So this is, you know, not a, a, a major cause celebration. And there was a lot of uh, concern, in, even outside of the homeland security threat, there was a lot of concern around how this commission was coming together. And so people who had contributed money to this commission started asking questions. Well, wait a second. We didn't know. We thought this was going to defend us about a benefit to people. Nobody wants to be a Disneyland theme park here to commemorate a violent atrocity that happened in this country. So what they're asking of the commission was why they're being sued is cut direct payments to the people who actually were impacted by this tragedy. And so as those companies started asking questions as the people who they were inviting to participate started asking questions, then the commission started wavering. And now they say because of Homeland Security threats canceled. I don't know if you can see, but there's not a tear setting on my face that is canceled. I'll be here with the members of the community bringing the cross connection to you live, talking to the actual descendants and survivors of what happened here in Greenwood. And thank you for that clarification. And we do have Christy Williams, and you are a descendant of a survivor as well. I want to pray. Tiffany did an interview with Tiffany Crutcher, who you just mentioned, um, and, and talked about this issue of generational wealth. Let me play that clip really quickly. This is cut three for my producer. Descendants, you know, what would our lives have been if we weren't robbed of our generational wealth? You know, I, I often sit back and ponder about that. I, I ponder about Laurel Stratford with her great-grandfather having the nicest hotel as a black man in the world. He could have been the Hilton. He could have been Marriott. Um, and so, and, and also there's a Leslie, Leslie Benningfield Randall who testified uh, before Congress. She said, I've lived much of my life poor. My opportunities are taken from me. They've raised more than $30 million, she mentioned, and refused to share any with me or the other survivors. So is, is, is that accurate then, Christy, that canceling this sort of big event with John Legend, et cetera, that's not going to impact the community? Uh, and it wasn't so much about safety. It's, it's more about, I guess, theft. You know, uh, Chicken Cross is right. Um, the, the community is supporting the Legacy Fest. Um, our only black student counselor, Vanessa Hall Harper, is uh, supporting the Legacy Fest. This community has been, um, we haven't been connected 
with this Centennial Commission and its efforts. So we are, we, we kind of really never plan to be a part of those events uh, in the first place, but our honor and our ancestors and our legacy and our history will continue with the Black Legacy Fest. Well, let me play um, another piece here. This is um, Tiffany's interview with Nehemiah Frank, who's the founder of the Black Wall Street Times, uh, on just the fact that people don't even seem in Tulsa to know about the massacre. Take a listen. I had not learned about the massacre until I was in college. Why do you think you never learned about it? I think uh, the reason we never learned about it is because... Why would why would our enemies want to why would our enemies want to teach the children of greatness, right? Why would they want to teach them how great they could be um, once again? Scott Ellsworth, it, it is it is um, a conundrum, right? You you have this commission that is essentially white Tulsa saying we're going to raise all this money and we're going to do some of our own commemoration that then winds up getting canceled. Um, but there seems to be a disconnect because it doesn't seem that white Tulsans are addressing the actual history here. It's not even taught in the schools, apparently. We talked to you about this before. People don't even know about it who live in the community. What do you make of what's going on? Well, I think we're, you know, we're at a point now where we're, we're going to a new inflection point to see what's going to happen. But I think, you know, the real reason when Nehemiah was speaking about why he didn't learn about it, the real reason was that the story of the race massacre and the story of Greenwood prior to the race massacre was actively suppressed for 50 years in this city. Official records were stolen and destroyed. Articles were cut out of newspapers. Um, the Tulsa, uh, Tulsa white daily newspapers refused to write about it for more than a half century. People researching it had their lives and their livelihoods threatened. So it's been a long, for, for 50 years it was buried, and it's taken another 50 years to get the story out. Yeah, and Tiffany, I know that you interviewed um, the 107-year-old Viola Fletcher, who just seemed so lovely, and who gave her testimony. She's the oldest living survivor. She was like seven years old when this happened. Were you able to talk to any white descendants? Because the thing is, is that the, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the people who burned Greenwood to the ground, presumably some of them are still around, some of them are still alive. I wonder if they... They must know in their own families that they were a part of this. Wait, that's the crazy part. I have to tell you, seeing what happened here on ground in Tulsa. So North Tulsa, as Chrissy can tell you, is predominantly black. And the way that the black Tulsans here live, it is a stark contrast. It's a food desert. It's still, you know, dilapidated. There's so much investment that could happen there that doesn't. So I asked. Well, I've heard from a lot of black people. I do want to hear from the white people. Where do they stand on this? And unfortunately, like uh, your evidence just said, a lot of that evidence has been destroyed. And so the descendants of the people who did this are still in power. They still run the city of Tulsa. So essentially, the black residents here work with each alongside the descendants of their murderers. The people who snatched their life and livelihood still control uh, the path to the ballot box, still control economic power, still control political power. And so it's really a testament to what black people survive the trauma that we normalize and the fact that people can be here and not gracefully, you know, confront some of these people that they know have a direct connection to uh, the devastation of their lives that is crippled time and crippled generations to still continue to impact their lives today. So the short answer of it is, boy, no, I have not talked to white descendants uh, of the people who did this because nobody wants to come forward. 
evidence has been destroyed. I do have an interesting interview with the mayor, Mayor uh, Bynum, who is um, adamantly against reparations, the Trump acolyte. But once, you know, this big celebration because he's, you know, trying to uncover bad phrase. And on the uh, show Saturday, I will talk to the descendants of um, white people who enslaved people. And they weren't Tolkien's, but they will talk about confronting their own history. So I think that yeah. is, I think white people have an important role in this conversation. And Chrissy, you are descended. So, I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, the fact is you're living among people who did this to your community. And they have all the power still. Yes, they still have all the power. And, you know, even um, Scott Ellsworth, who's on this panel with us tonight, um, and, and Noah Simpson, he has done some great research about the history um, of Greenwood has written many books. So you see a lot of white people who still profit from our pain and from our oppression. And as I serve on the Mass Graves Committee, the Mass Graves Investigation Committee, with Scott Ellsworth, they listen to him more than they listen to us. Um, so it, it, it is still those white people who are in power. Um, and it's important that we, we control our own history, we tell our own history, and that, you know, we have to, to make it clear that what we want for our community um, as we honor our ancestors, we have this Greenwood Rising History Center um, coming up, but they never do engage with the community on what kind of history is in that museum. Our museum has always been the Greenwood Cultural Center, and that has been taken from us, and the community feels really slighted um, on this. And then, you know, I'm also a Creek Freedman descendant. So, you know, the, the Creek Nation kicked the black people out of the tribe in 1979. Um, my family had over 460 acres of land, um, and, and we lost that when, when Oklahoma became a state. Uh, and the first law was Jim Crow, and they imported white guardians over our, our property. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 it's a double-edged sword for, for a descendant like me, um, yeah. and for a lot of descendants in Tulsa. And these stories are just not being told. Yeah. What, what, are, what are your okay, thoughts pa- pa- on that, Mr. Pa- pa- pause it right I mean, there. Pause it right there, Shakita. What do, you, what, do you, what do you have to say about that? Pause it right there, Shakita, please. Thank you. But back it up about 20, 30 seconds. Okay, so you heard this, um, the one sister, and I forgot which one it was, uh, but she is of uh, Creek Indian ancestry. She's a descendant of uh, uh, black freedmen who were, um, African slaves owned by Creek Indians, owned by the Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians. Her family got land because of those Black Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866 that you hear me talk about. And her family became, her ancestors were uh, members of the Creek Indian Nation. But then in 19, about 1971 or so, the Creek Indians are going to kick uh, the Black Freedmen out of the uh, Creek Indian Nation. The same thing happened with Cherokee. The Cherokee stripped the black, the, stripped the descendants of the black freedmen of their um, rights in the Cherokee Nation. Uh, the descendants of the black freedmen are going to sue and they're going to, you know, win all their rights. This, this happened somewhere around 2011. Then they're going to sue to get their get their rights and voting rights uh, within the Creek, uh, within the Cherokee nation to get all that back. But she talked about how her family owned over 400 acres of land, 
because they they got land through the Indian treaties in different different ways. They owned over four hundred acres of land, and that land, when they were kicked out of the Creek Indian Nation, that that land was taken away from them. All right. So this is a deep history. Now, as as I've said before, see, you have to understand this chronology of history, because Tulsa, Oklahoma, was founded by Creek Indians around eighteen thirty six or so. Um, when the Creek Indians get pushed off of their land in southeastern United States and they go over a thousand miles into Oklahoma on what's known as the Trail of Tears, the Trail of Tears. And they take their African slaves with them. And it's the same thing the, the Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, Cherokee and Seminole Indians. They all own African slaves. They all get pushed off their land. In southeastern United States because of the Indian Removal Act, Alabama, Georgia, different areas like this. The Indian Removal Act of 1830 signed in the law by the no good president, Andrew uh, Jackson, who was the favorite president of the other no good president, Donald Trump. So they're going to take their African slaves into um, Oklahoma. Oklahoma is a territory at this time. Oklahoma does not become a state in the Union until 1907. And um, after the Civil War ends, 1865, you know, you're going to have these uh, treaties and they're going to get land. They're going to get these um, black freedmen. They're going to get land. They're going to get some type of compensation, uh, different things like this. They get uh, uh, they get uh, um, they become citizens of those respective Native American nations. Etc. have voting rights. They have status in those Native American nations have voting rights, but some of them are going to be kicked out, stripped of those, uh, stripped of that status. This happens to the Cherokee, the black freedmen in the Cherokee Nation, as well as the Creek Indian Nation. There's an article from. Uh, let's see, and I'm, I'm really trying to keep this short. But there's an article from. Um, which one was that? Hold on. This deals with the Creek Indian Nation. Um, this is from November 20th, 2020. I think this deals with the, does this deal with the Creek? Yeah, the Muscogee Creek, okay. Let's look at this article quickly. All of this history is tied together, and this ties all into the history of uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street, etc. Okay, this ties into a lot of our history. I have I have Cherokee and um, Black Crow in my family on my mother's side because my mother's from Tennessee. Her family's from Tennessee. Okay, the Black Native American descendants fighting for the right to belong. Black Native American descendants fighting for the right to belong. Descendants of enslaved members of the Muscogee Creek Nation have been in a decades-long fight for recognition after they were told they could no longer call themselves members. The Black Native American descendants fighting for the right to belong. This article is from November 20th, 2020. November 20th, 2020, NBCnews.com. Um, it, it says, when Rhonda Grayson was growing up in Oklahoma, 
summer visits to her grandparents' house in Wawaka uh, meant time spent in the kitchen with her grandmother. To, together, they cooked peach cobbler and traditional native, native foods like wild onions, poke salad, and hominy, the corn used to make grits. Cooking was just one way that Rhonda Grayson learned about the rich history and culture of generations of black Native Americans who came before her. She said, I was always keenly aware of my African ancestry. And she's 51 years old at the time of this article. Part of her lineage was Native, also Native American. She said, I always knew that we were Creek. Now, one of those Black Creek ancestors was Rhonda Grayson's great-grandmother. Her name was America Kohi. America Kohi. Now, America Kohi was an original enrollee in the Muscogee Creek Nation. For generations, Black Creeks like Kohi had been a part of the tribe until one day they weren't. Until one day they weren't. For more than 40 years, Black Creek descendants like Rhonda Grayson have been fighting to regain citizenship in the Creek tribe. Because their lineal, because, because their lineage also harks back to the days of chattel slavery, these would-be uh, members of the Creek Nation have been shut out in a year marked by historic uprisings in support of black lives. These black Native Americans say now is the time to acknowledge their rights too. Now is the time to acknowledge their rights too. Then it gets into the Dawes Allotment Act of 1887 that you've heard me talk about before. All this history is connected, okay? And this history ties into laws. And politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth pond resources and the writing of law, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, 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 their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. All of this, all of this is connected. Read this article. I don't have time to get through the rest of it. I just, want to, I just want you to understand this history. Okay? So, um, and the, 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 the Black Freeman Indian Treaties of 1866, that was crafted by the U.S. government. That was crafted by the U.S. government. So read this article here. Now, this also then ties into this is connected to the history of Sarah Rector. OK, Sarah Rector in where? Oklahoma. And Sarah Rector was the richest Afro-American girl in the in the country. 1913, she's a millionaire and her family was of uh, 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 Black Creek. Uh, ancestry. Her, her, her ancestors were enslaved by the Creek Indians. Okay. If you look at this article here, meet Sarah Rector, R-E-C-T-O-R. -E meet Sarah Rector, the, uh, the 12, the 12 year old who became America's youngest black millionaire in 1913. Okay. We're out of time here on 910 AM Superstation WFDF. Um, those watching on our, on our, Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotel. Keep watching. Uh, be sure to register for the online course that I teach on Saturdays, uh, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa 
understand the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. You can register there. Right now, it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. Wakanda forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. All right, stand by. We're going to go for a few more minutes. Um, we'll talk briefly about Kristen Clark. We'll talk some more about Kristen Clark tomorrow becoming, um, uh, she was confirmed. She's going to be, uh, uh, she's going to head up the, the civil rights department and the department of justice. So we have, uh, you know, Sarah Rector, we just talked about her, uh, recently. Uh, Sarah Rector was born in Indian territory, March 3rd, 1902. Um, and let's see. Okay, Creek Nation. Uh, America's youngest millionaire, uh, Sarah Rector, who was considered to have been the richest black child in the uh, in the world at the time in 1913. Uh, her parents were owned by Creek Indians before the Civil War. Her parents were owned by Creek Indians before the Civil War. As the as the site, a uh, uh, U.S. slave explains, she and some 600 other black children were entitled to land allotments as the children of enslaved people belonging to the Creek Nation. OK, uh, in 1866, the Creek Nation signed a treaty with the United States government promising to emancipate their 16000 African slaves and incorporate them into their nation. As a citizen, as citizens entitled to quote equal interest, equal interest in the soil and national funds. Okay, two decades later, the federally imposed Dawes Allotment Act, the Dawes Allotment Act, D A W E S, named after Senator Henry L. Dawes of Massachusetts, the Dawes Allotment Act of 1887 sparked the beginning of the total assimilation of the Indians of the so-called five civilized tribes of Native Americans by forcing them to live on individually owned lots of land instead of communally as they had done for centuries, okay? Um, but these lands often granted to former slaves were usually worthless, inferior, and fertile, and rocky, while fertile lands were reserved for white settlers. In fact, believing that it was worthless, Sarah Rector's father even petitioned the court to sell the land as the family could not pay the $30 in annual property tax. What's going to happen is oil is going to be discovered on that land. Um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the father's going to lease uh, the land to the uh, Standard Oil Company, where independent oil driller B.B. Jones found a gusher bringing in 2,500 barrels. Sarah Rector began receiving an income of $300 a day, okay, which is over $7,000 a day today. And because, because of this land that she owned that came from those treaties. All right, this is a deep history. All of this is connected, and this ties into the origins of of um, the Greenwood District in, uh, uh, in, in, in North Tulsa. So read this article here from face2faceafrica.com. Meet Sarah Rector, the 12-year-old who became America's 
youngest black millionaire in 1913. All right. Okay. So the, um, let me see here. We had the information. I had the website up before. Uh, you can register for the online. If you like this type of information, you definitely want to register for my Saturday online course. Uh, I teach it on Saturdays, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school. This is a, a nine-week uh, online course that I teach. We deal with thousands of years of history, and we deal with what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place, okay? So when you go to our website, uh, you scroll down, you see the information for the uh, my daily radio show. Uh, we have the link here to listen to audio podcasts of the shows. You can read articles I've written here. And then we have the information here for the class. Uh, we have the flyer here as well. You can click right here to register here. Next class is Saturday, May 29th, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Class has been discounted down to $60 for the entire course. Um, since we're about halfway through the course, click here to enroll. As soon as you register for the class, you can start watching the content. We do the class live. But all the sessions are recorded, so you can watch it over and over again. So as soon as you register, you can watch last week's uh, class. And our guest speaker was uh, archaeologist uh, Nubia Wartford, who is an African-American female archaeologist. She goes to the Sudan to do archaeological digs. And we talked about um, we talked about uh, the origins of ancient Kush and the African queens of antiquity. All right. So uh, read these articles here and then. Uh, very quickly here. Lastly, Kristen Clark, uh, who was with the Lawyers Committee, um, Lawyers Committee for Justice. Uh, you, you, you probably heard about the contentious uh, or contentious confirmation here and white um, male Republicans were giving her a hard time. But she was finally confirmed by a vote of 51 to 48 on Tuesday, uh, May 25th. OK, the same day that we commemorated the. Uh, murder of George Floyd. If we look at this article here from um, NBC News, NBC News, uh, Kristen Clark be becomes first black woman to head DOJ's civil rights division. She was confirmed by a 51 to 48 vote in the Senate. And Senator Susan Collins of Maine was the only Republican to vote in favor of Kristen Clark's nomination. You would think uh, Senator Tim Scott, the only black uh, Republican senator in the Senate, you think he'd vote for a sister? No, he didn't. He didn't vote for her. Okay. He is for police reform. Okay. Now, he doesn't go as far as many Democrats want. Uh, he doesn't go as far with police reform as many Democrats are demanding. But he goes farther than many Republicans are demanding and want, but he didn't vote for this system. So the U.S. Senate confirmed uh, Kristen Clark to lead the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, making her the first woman and the first African-American woman to helm the, pow the powerful post. In a vote of 51 to 48, the Senate confirmed uh, Kristen Clark as assistant attorney General, Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division. Uh, Susan Maine of 
uh, uh, Susan Collins of Maine was the only Republican to vote in favor of uh, Kristen Clark's nomination, which was notably held on the uh, one-year commemoration of George Floyd's death. Now, Kristen Clark previously led the Civil Rights Bureau at the New York Attorney General's office. In 2015, she was also named head of the Lawyers Committee for the Civil Rights, for Civil Rights Under Law, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, during which time the organization said it filed more than 250 lawsuits on voting rights, education, hate crimes, and housing, among others, okay? Uh, during which time, the in 2015, she was also named head of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, during which time the organization said it filed more than 250 lawsuits on voting rights, education, hate crimes, and housing, among others. Now, she was sworn, uh, sworn in on Tuesday evening by Vice President Kamala Harris, whose office called Kristen Clark a tireless champion of equal justice in a statement before the ceremony. Now, her nomination was met with opposition from idiotic Republicans who accused Kristen Clark of anti-Semitism. Uh, the accusation stemmed from an incident in 1994 in which the Harvard, Harvard Blacks, because she graduated from Harvard, the Harvard Black Students Association, a group Kristen Clark led at age 18, invited a professor accused of promoting anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. That professor is Tony Martin. Okay, Tony Martin, brilliant, brilliant brother, Tony Martin, expert on Marcus Garvey. Um, I remember seeing lectures of Tony Martin back during the 90s. Okay, so they so this organization invited Tony Martin to, to speak at Harvard. Now, Kristen Clark defended uh, the decision at the time in the Harvard Crimson, the school's student newspaper. She acknowledged uh, this past January that giving uh, the professor a platform was a mistake and touted her record on anti-Semitism and civil rights work. They go all the way back to her being 19 years old in college. Republicans also took issue with the sharp attacks on opponents on Twitter, including lawmakers such as Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, and Lisa Murkowski, Republican of, of Alaska. Before voting, voting on her nomination, Arkansas Republican uh, punk-ass Tom Cotton, called Kristen uh, Clark highly partisan, highly partisan and suggested that because of her past comments calling former Benedict Donald, Donald Trump the traitor-in-chief, I'm calling him the traitor-in-chief, not her, uh, but calling uh, the traitor-in-chief, calling Donald Trump's judicial nominees, quote, white male extremists, end quote, uh, Senator Tom Cotton also raised the issue of her statements on police, including a June 2020 Newsweek op-ed headlined, quote, I prosecute the police killings, defund the police, but be strategic. This is Tom Cotton, who also said that something to the effect that there needs to be more black people in prison or something like that. Tom Cotton of Arkansas. He needs to be voted out of office. This is, this is an idiot. Um, let me, let me try to find this. This is, this is the same Tom Cotton who in 2015 blocked the early version of the uh, First Step Act. 
block that in the Senate. It was Tom Cotton and another white supremacist named Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III. They tried to get that passed in the Senate in 2015 under President Obama. And these two, uh, uh, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas and, and Senator Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III blocked that bill in, in the Senate because they're against criminal justice reform. Uh, let me see. Where, where is this here? Vice.com, April 7th, 2021. Tom Cotton will not shut up about putting more people in prison. See, this is an example of how elections have consequences. It's not just about your uh, U.S. Senator. It's about the other ones in the Senate also. The Republican senator from Arkansas thinks that the U.S. has a prison problem. It doesn't have enough uh, of them. It doesn't have enough of them. I would I would argue you do need to have some more people in prison. You can start with some of these Republicans. You can start with the traitorous Republicans in the U.S. Senate that did not vote to uh, impeach Trump the first or second time. They violated their oath of office. They violated their oath to defend the U.S. Constitution against enemies, both foreign and domestic. If you want to talk about putting more people in prison, start with these jackasses. Um, okay, so read the rest of it. I don't, I don't feel like dealing with Tom Cotton. You can read this article here. You see what an idiot, see what an idiot he is, Trump supporter. Um, what is this here? Okay, we'll post a link here. Read that one from Vice.com. I want to go to this clip here from Roland Martin Unfiltered. Uh, they talked about uh, Kristen Clark being confirmed. Uh, they talked about this a couple of days ago. Let me uh, let me pull up this clip here just a second. Let me cue this up. How's everybody doing? Who still needs to uh, Who still needs to register for um, my Saturday online course? Also, we'll post the link here again. Um, people are learning a lot in the class. How's everybody doing here? Okay, we have Ruby, Dolores, um, just a few of the people watching, Ronald, Willie. Let me go back. I want to go back to this article here from NBC News quickly. So, um, Tom Cotton said Ms. Clark has consistently demonstrated. So she got a lot of flack from the, uh, some of these white male uh, Republicans. Tom Cotton, Raphael Ted Cruz, uh, Senator John Cornyn of Texas. Um, and she's intellectually superior to them and they know it. Okay. They, they, and they were giving her a hard time, but they still couldn't stop her from being confirmed. Quote, Miss Clark has consistently demonstrated that she's more interested in attacking police and calling everybody a racist than finding the facts or reviewing the evidence. This is what dumbass Tom Cotton said. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican, also criticized the nomination on the Senate floor, noting 2020 crime statistics. He said early data 
from this year suggests the 20, that 2021 may uh, be even worse, but apparently the president's response to this violent crime is to have a proponent of defunding the police help run the Department of Justice. However, Christian Clark's nomination was praised by Democrats and civil rights groups. Senator Dick Durbin, a Democrat from Illinois, said on the Senate floor, at this moment in history, filling the division, the city, the civil rights division on the anniversary of George Floyd's murder on the streets of Minnesota, we are choosing the first woman of color in the history of the United States to head this division. It's a historic choice. It should not be trivialized by those who want to paint a caricature of a woman not even close to the truth. Read, read this article here from um, NBC News. Kristen Clark becomes first black woman to head Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. Then there was also one from, um, uh, there was also one from uh, CNN. We're going to pull that up uh, in just a second here. Okay, hold on just a second. Uh, I'm going to post a link here again to register for the online course. You can go ahead and reg register. As soon as you register, you can start watching the content. You can watch last week's class. We'll post it here. I just posted the link. It's also at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. It's right on the homepage. You scroll down the homepage, you'll see it. Okay, just a second. I want to go to um, this uh, segment here from Roland Martin and Filtered, where they talked about uh, Kristen Clark uh, being confirmed. Let's see here. All right, let's go to this clip. Uh, hey, big news on Capitol Hill today. Finally, Kristen Clark. Uh, was confirmed today. The first African-American woman confirmed to run the Justice Department Civil Rights Division. Uh, it was a 51-48 vote. It was contentious. Of course, Republicans doing all they can to stop her and, of course, Benita Gupta from being confirmed. Both of them confirmed Christian Clark, formerly head of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. She now goes to run the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Joining us right now is Melanie Campbell, Black Women's Roundtable National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. Uh, Melanie, finally, uh, it was a long, hard fight. Uh, they, they tried to keep her from getting a job, but uh, uh, folks persevered, and Christian Clark makes, makes history uh, at DOJ. Yes, indeed, with a 51-48 vote uh, margin, uh, with one Republican, Susan Collins from the state of Maine. So we have to ask ourselves, what are the white boys doing over there on the Republican side when it comes to black women? But we're not going to take away from the fact that Kristen uh, uh, Clark was confirmed and she was running that civil rights division. She made history today. So we're really excited about that. And ready to get, you know, she's going to be, she's ready on day one. That's the other part of it. And, and for it to happen today, um, the day of uh, George Floyd's, you know, com this commemoration moment of his, his life, She'll be uh, dealing with issues around police reform, criminal justice reform, voting rights, hate crimes, and all these many of these kinds of uh, issues of injustice. She'll be right in there dealing with 
uh, all kinds of things dealing with um, equity and opportunity and justice. So we're excited about that. America is in a much better place. Uh, and I, civil rights division. And it's important, Mel. You mentioned Susan Collins, uh, a senator from Maine, voting for Christian Clark. I want every black person who's watching, Ron Johnson, Senator Wisconsin, up for re-election next year, not voting for her. Uh, uh, you have, of course, the, sen the senator in North Carolina, uh, Burr, not running for re-election, did not vote for her. Uh, Toomey, not running for re-election, Pennsylvania, didn't vote for her. Rubio in Florida, Rubio in Florida, who is running next year, did not vote for her. Don't forget that when it's voting time. That's right. That's right. And we were paying attention to that today. I was on the highway, you know, but still paying attention. And uh, so uh, that's what elections are all about. Uh, but it really, and, and Tim Scott, I was disappointed, quite frankly, uh, from South Carolina, did not step up and, and, and join and, and vote for a sister who is exceptionally qualified for that position. Oh, to your point, he's up for re-election next year as well. Um, um, again, so so again, explain to people who don't know why that position here in the Civil Rights Division is so important. I, I want to read point blank. What is the Civil Rights Division? I'm glad you asked that question. I want, if you don't mind, I want to read this. What does the Civil Rights Division do? It enforces federal statutes prohibiting discrimination on the basis of race, color, sex including pregnancy, sexual orientation, and gender identity, disability, religion, familiar status, national origin, and citizenship status, right? She also will be dealing with, as I stated earlier, issues around civil rights, voting rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, uh, dealing with issues around uh, hate crimes. So she has a large portfolio. Um, uh, uh, I think I said, I hope I didn't say police reform um, and, and sentencing reform. So all these things that have a major impact on black and brown communities. This sister who has dedicated her life to uh, issues around justice understands the law and has a lived experience that she brings to this position. And I, I'm just, I'm just uh, excited for her to be able to continue to serve the people. At the end of the day, it's, it's, it's about service, public service. And uh, they found it not robbery to put her in that position. Uh, with her colleagues, I think we're seeing justice coming back to the Justice Department because we didn't have it for four years, at least four years, for those four years. Absol absolutely. Melanie Campbell, we certainly appreciate it. said, and we certainly also want to thank you and the coalition for being partners with thank us here you. at Roland Mark Unfiltered. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you.
Uh, I'm going to go back to my panel real quick here. Uh, Van, uh, again, I don't want people to, to really overlook why this matters. Have, and, and, you know, I, I love all these fools, Ben, uh, who send me, who send me tweets. Oh, man, you sit here, sold black people out, uh, supporting Biden. This real simple. Yeah. yeah. It was going to be a, tr it was going to be a Trump Department of Justice or a Biden Department of Justice. This, this is real simple. Here's what we already know. A, a, a Biden Department of Justice has already announced investigations of patterns and practices of the Minneapolis and Louisville Police Department. Mm -hmm. But everybody who's watching me, I'm telling let y'all understand, I can guarantee you that Kristen Clark running the Civil Rights Division under President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, is infinitely 100,000% better than anybody who Donald Trump would have had running the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. I mean, you could tell by his, um, uh, you could tell by Jeff Sessions, the first pick, you could tell by William Barr, uh, you could tell by all the things that Donald Trump stood for. Uh, but Roland, I think what you're, what you're speaking to is this uh, intentional obtuseness that we get from a lot of people who observe polit politics uh, but don't get engaged enough to understand that at some times you're going to have to make a vote that's a lesser of two evils. And in this case, you can see very clearly that this is not even just a lesser of two, two evils. This is a, a most affirmatively a good thing. And, and so we're dealing with um, we're dealing with people who like politics of simplicity and the politics of, of talking points and the idea that they're too woke to participate. Uh, and, and that's the kind of simple reduction that goes on with people who make those type of comments that you get. I get them all the time uh, about, oh, you voted for Joe Biden. Y yeah, you're damn right. I voted for Joe Biden. The alternative was Donald Trump. What's wrong with these people? <laughs> you know, the thing again, uh, uh, Georgia, uh, I, I can tell you, we will have a far more responsive civil rights division, mm -hmm. Department of Justice under Christian Clark than anybody. Who would have been uh, in Donald Trump's Department of Justice? Absolutely, without a doubt. And I think, uh, historically speaking, when you look at the track record of black women in leadership, oftentimes that is when we see the most change. And so uh, I am excited to see how they transform uh, not just uh, the way that we've been looking at civil rights, but the, the way that we're prioritizing, uh, prioritizing issues that affect black communities the most. Uh, and hearing, uh, you know, about uh, pregnancy and, and women's issues, LGBTQ, so many things that I think often get left out of the spectrum of civil rights, um, injecting that into uh, the priorities. I'm, I'm very excited to see how uh, this, this shifts uh, uh, what is happening across our country. And uh, we know that the more people of color that we get into positions of leadership, uh, for the most part, generally speaking, uh, that is going to produce change in, in our favor. So I, I am excited for her. And I think it's also important for young women to see uh, people like uh, Kristen in, in that position because it gives, it gives Black girls something to aspire to um, outside of maybe the traditional professions. And, uh, and I, so I'm excited. I, I'm truly elated and uh, want to send a huge congratulations to her and her team, because I know it was not an EDP. Uh, oh, did everybody speak, Teresa? 
You speak on this, Teresa? Absolutely. I have to speak on it. So, um, yeah, Kristen Clark, um, I think, you know, I, I agree with my, my fellow uh, colleagues and panelists uh, about Kristen Clark's appointment. And I just wanted to add on to say the Civil Rights Division is seeing exactly what Kristen Clark is all about on day one. Um, and that's exactly what we need in this country is a proactive civil rights division that are putting people first. Um, she's going in without an agenda, but she's going in knowing the law and making history in the same time. And she looks good doing it. So um, I wish her well. And I and I pray that, you know, we still have um, the support that she needs while in that position to to really uphold, um, you know, what really criminal justice reform uh, looks like in America. All right. So that is from, um, what date was that? That's from May 25th. Yeah, May 25th, 2021. Congratulations to Kristen Clark. I saw some of the confirmation hearing. A lot of white male Republicans, uh, you know, were going after her, but, you know, she she's smarter than all of them. So uh, she still got confirmed. All right. That's going to do it for us here. Uh, be sure to register for the online course that I teach ancient, uh, on Saturdays, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Uh, it's a nine-week uh, online course. We deal with thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. And you can uh, visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, right on the home page. And when you scroll down, uh, we have the information for the class. And click right here to register here. It'll take you to the next page and click on Enroll. It's a nine-week uh, online course. And I do a PowerPoint presentation, so it's visual. I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have uh, book references, articles, video clips, everything. Uh, you don't have to buy the books to follow along in the class, but I use them for reference, okay? So uh, check that out. We do the classes live, but all the sessions are recorded, so you don't have to worry about trying to get home at a certain time or something like that. As soon as you register, you can start watching the course content. You can watch last week's class. All right, we have to get out of here. Uh, you can also support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, and then um, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show through PayPal. This helps us keep broadcasting six days a week, uh, keep doing the research, stay on the air, pay some of the bills, et cetera. When you do it through Cash App, be sure to type in dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W. Dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W, the show. My name is to say Michael and show my picture there. All right, we have to get out of here. Remember, the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Gain knowledge in minutes from insightful summaries of progressive and socially conscious books. Blacklisted gives you access to curated content that'll satisfy your curiosity to learn and understand different perspectives. Empower yourself through inspirational and actionable ideas. It's easy to read or listen to on the go. Blacklisted, empower yourself. Start your free trial today.
Are you getting ready for fall or winter? We have the solution for all seasonal clothing needs. Cometicwear.com is the go-to online source for Cometic African fashion and lifestyle products with a contemporary twist. We're committed to offering unique styles reflecting our African heritage. Cometicwear.com is inspired by Cometicscribes.com to influence our people in learning and showing pride. Please visit our website at cometicwear.com. We all know the cannabis industry is headed toward an uprise in the past decade. What happens when there is a brand that brings this uprise in a blow? The cannabis industry welcomes her uprise. Hustle her hemp. Delivering excellence with pride is her watchword, and how you choose to embrace it makes it a priority. From cultivating rich cannabis into exquisite and tastefully finished CBD products to delivery, Hustler Hemp leaves no stone unturned. Hustler Hemp's mission is to empower women of color by building business and creating legacies, uniting beauty, health, and business. We are a pure definition of how we want the CBD industry to become in the future. While we are redefining innovation, we bring the same energy to improving the quality of life. Hustle Her Hemp is the new Uprise. Hi, I'm Joel Wilson, President and CEO of JCW Computer Consulting LLC a technology implementation firm with over 20 years of satisfying customers. We offer a full spectrum of industry top-tier branded services. We are an authorized partner or reseller for Lenovo, Zoom, T-Mobile, Microsoft 365, and Surface tablets, Google Workspace, Acer, Asus, Samsung, PCmatic security software, and many more. Our online store features laptops, Chromebooks, computers, printers, accessories, and software. Businesses, take advantage of our free one-hour Zoom tech consultation and know we offer top nationwide high-speed internet service providers, voice over IP, and cellular phone services. Home users, don't miss our current in-stock Chromebook inventory. Please visit us at jcwcc.com or call 215-879-6701. Hi, I'm Joel Wilson. President and CEO of JCW Computer Consulting, LLC, a technology implementation firm with over 20 years of satisfying customers. We offer a full spectrum of industry top-tier branded services. We are an authorized partner or reseller for Lenovo, Zoom, T-Mobile, Microsoft 365, and Surface tablets, Google Workspace, Acer, Asus, Samsung, PCmatic security software, and many more. Our online store features laptops, Chromebooks, computers, printers, accessories, and software. Businesses, take advantage of our free one-hour Zoom tech consultation and know we offer top nationwide high-speed internet service providers, voice over IP, and cellular phone services. Home users, don't miss our current in-stock Chromebook inventory. Please visit us at jcwcc.com or call 215 879 6701. 
We all know the cannabis industry is headed toward an uprise in the past decade. What happens when there is a brand that brings this uprise in a blow? The cannabis industry welcomes her uprise. Hustle her hemp. Delivering excellence with pride is her watchword, and how you choose to embrace it makes it a priority. From cultivating rich cannabis into exquisite and tastefully finished CBD products to delivery, Hustle Her Hemp leaves no stone unturned. Hustle Her Hemp's mission is to empower women of color by building business and creating legacies, uniting beauty, health, and business. We are a pure definition of how we want the CBD industry to become in the future. While we are redefining innovation, we bring the same energy to improving the quality of life. Hustle Her Hemp is the new Uprise. For 25 years, the Black History One-on-One Mobile Museum has carried on the rich legacy of the Black Museum movement in America by showcasing original artifacts of the Black experience at colleges, universities, K-12 schools, corporations, libraries, conferences, and cultural events, making it the most traversed Black History Mobile exhibit in American history. Dr. Khalid El Hakim is the founder of the Black History One-on-One Mobile Museum, and he is a highly sought-after public speaker on topics of black history, social studies, education, museum studies, hip-hop, and race relations. Dr. Khalid was named among the changemakers for NBC Universal's Erase the Hate campaign and listed as one of the 100 Men of Distinction for Black Enterprise. He recently founded the Michigan Hip Hop Archive on the campus of Western Michigan University. The Black History One-on-One Mobile Museum is currently scheduling in-person and virtual exhibits nationwide. For more information, please contact Dr. Khalid Al-Hakim directly at 313-645-4197, 313-645-4197, or visit their website at blackhistorymobilemuseum.com. That's blackhistorymobilemuseum.com. You can also email him at bhistory101 at yahoo.com, bhistory101 at yahoo.com. With blackbusinesstea.com. The messages are clear and meaningful. Keep your business in the black and out of the red. Mind your black business. Know your numbers and plan strategically. Black business boss, lead your industry. Support black business. Encourage, patronize, and uplift one another. BlackBusinessTea.com currently has products sold in Detroit, Atlanta, Chicago, and Los Angeles with proceeds returned to the black community. They have a wide selection of hoodies, t-shirts, mugs, hats, sweatshirts that support black owned businesses. Visit the website blackbusinesstea.com that's blackbusinesstee.com. Digital Dandelion's technical solutions works with businesses like yours to create an operations manual for your business which is something many businesses don't have. According to AARP, more than 30% of small business owners are over 50 years old. Many business owners want to retire by selling their businesses 
or by passing their businesses on to their children. However, according to Forbes Investment Advisors, many retiring owners attempt to sell their businesses or retirement fail. You cannot sell your business without a business manual. Your children also cannot inherit your business because there is no way to run it. Your business does not have to die when you leave. Their business Bible products will give you the tools you need for a thriving business that can make you money even after you retire. Are you looking at increasing your business's annual revenue? Digital Dandelions can help you make at least $100,000 in annual revenue and expand your business. Speak with them today about solidifying your business. Visit DigitalDandelions.com today and get a free 30-minute consultation.